I'm a kind of a, I don't know if I'm a freak of nature, but I, 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 I'm fairly analytical about, about language and stories and, and things like that and, and asking questions about things. And um, I was thinking through this last week. I was actually on a run when this happened about the whole story of, uh, it's a poem that m- many of us learned when we were kids. Um, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Um, Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill, Jill came tumbling after. I think that's how it goes. And, uh, you know, you, you think about that poem that we learned, and it just, you know, you ask yourself, like, like, what is the stinking point of that poem? You know, it would, I, I'm serious. Like, what is the point? Is there a moral point? Why did we take the time to learn that? And, and I haven't done research into the history of it, but, but uh, is there a point? And what would that point be? Like, tell your kids, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Is it? You know, stay away from hills. Don't go wandering out with somebody of the opposite sex without a parent around. Um, wear a helmet next time, you know, so when you fall down, you don't break your crown. And then the story itself, you know, it's like, I, I asked, did, did they ever actually make it to the top of the hill and get the pail of water? Because the story leaves us hanging. It just says Jack and Jill went up the hill. Doesn't it tell us that we actually made it? And then, then what's with the crown thing? I mean, are we to believe that Jack died as a result of this little journey, which is, a, you know, again, like, what's the point? Okay, so, what I would like to do, and I want you to indulge um, a little theological creativity, I would like to give a Christian interpretation to that with a, a bit of a theological adaptation, because I want to introduce you to a concept with two people, all right? So, according to this, like, theological adaptation. Let's just say, for sake of the argument, that what's at the top of the hill in terms of a pail of water is what every human being wants most. Perfect satisfaction. Peace. That perfect joy. That perfect sense of happiness and completion that every human being wants. Let's just say, for sake of the argument, that that's what's in the pail of water. Now let me introduce you to Jack, and let me introduce you to Jill. Because both of these individuals, according to my little fiction, want the same thing, but they're going to take two very different routes. Jack. Jack tends to be a bit of a rebel. came out when he was a kid. His mom used to harp on him all the time, trying to drill into him two sacred commands. Do not hang out with bad girls. And don't do drugs. Those are like the two big commands that his mom drilled into his head. But Jack didn't really trust his mom's judgment. And so he found himself gravitating towards the bad girls. You know, the ones who at that time wore way too much makeup and way too little clothes. Ended up getting into a relationship with one of them and, and became sexually active and Pretty soon found himself, reputation of being a player, looking for that satisfaction. At some point, someone offers him some drugs. Uh, Let's just say it's marijuana, for sake of argument. And he remembers what his mom says, said, and drilled into his head, but he realizes, you know, I'm willing to try anything once. And so he went ahead and did it, and you know what? He liked it. He liked it so much that he began to do it more regularly, and he actually found that it kind of took away that gnawing sense of guilt and pain that he had, and that, that sense of 
purpose, purposelessness of life. That is, he felt like his life really wasn't going anywhere. And, and he continued on this, this path of kind of doing whatever he wanted. You know, that, a word that captures that is a libertine. That is somebody who kind of lives life however they want and, and, and saying yes to whatever they want. And as his life progressed, he pretty much did the same thing and, and uh, ended up leaving a whole wake of devastated relationships, um, eking out a bare subsistence, doing a menial job, and living in a rundown apartment and feeling like his life was a failure. All of those dreams he had when he was a kid of, of like, you know, being a great family man and, and uh, having a successful career just slowly settled down into a kind of a place of, of settled mediocrity. No matter how much he tried on this path of the libertine way of living life on his own terms, he just couldn't get to the top of the hill to drink from that pail of water. Everything he did just was hollow. And in the end, Jack fell down and broke his crown. Didn't make it. That's Jack. Let's just say he typifies what we might call the libertine path of life, of doing things my way. And I bet some of you look back and say, yeah, that's me. I'm like Jack. I was a rebel, trying to find life by rebelling. Jill, very different path, very different personality. Now, she was the kind of person who, if you looked at her, she was compliant. She, she didn't like to break rules. She liked to keep the rules of her parents. And, and she had a strong sense of will and discipline and strong um, uh, goal setter. She did her best to, to, to fulfill the expectations of her parents. She got straight A's through school. She stayed away from the bad boys. She did so well in high school, she got accepted to the Ivy League school. And she, she studied business, went on to do a master's in business. And and hired by a Fortune 500 company and quickly rose through the ranks and until she, she landed a job as a, as a junior vice president. From all outward appearances, it looked like this path that Jill took. Let's just call it the performance-based achievement or legalistic approach. It looked like from all outward vantage points that she had drunk from the pail at the top of the hill. She made it. But what most people didn't see was the sense of burden that she carried to always perform next time better than the time before that. And what started out as an act of, 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 of discipline ended up becoming a burden of trying to sustain a life that she had built. She also was somebody who had developed, unbeknownst to people, a, a, a serious issue with anger whenever she would fail, because everyone does. Even small things would send Jill into a tailspin of anger, followed by depression. So no matter how, how hard she tried, on the outside it looked like she drank, but in fact on the inside she too felt hollow. Living under the weight of trying to perform and tying her whole sense of joy to her achievements, and yet never feeling fully satisfied. It's a grueling burden to carry, to base one's whole sense of worth and joy on one's achievements. She, too, was reaching for the pale. A different route, same end, different route, and she, too, failed. She didn't drink from the cup, and so, different route, but Jill came tumbling after now, these two ways of life, 
typify the two ways of life that people take in this world. The person who's the libertine, they want to live life on their terms and say yes to things. And then there is the legalist or the performance-based person who lives life trying to you know, grab hold of that silver coin um, through their own personal achievement or performance. And the Bible would say that both of those ways are forms of slavery. Paul has argued in Galatians that the performance-based legal, legalistic life is slavery of always trying to measure up to an expectation revealed in Scripture that you'll never live up to. Slavery, he says, and it's never going to get you to the top of the hill. He also argues, chapter 6, that the libertine life, the one that just, hey, I'm just going to live life on my own terms and pursue some kind of a hedonistic pleasure in trying to find life, that too ends in destruction. Both ways are paths to slavery. And both ways are human attempts to grasp at that one thing. Or some people have called this self-salvation. And neither of them work. Now, the question that would arise, especially if you're studying the book of Galatians, is like, are these the only two options? And I bet you can look at people and say, I know this person's a lot like Jack, and this person's a lot like Jill. And you can look in your own life and say, I'm like Jack, or I'm, I'm like Jill. And I know that that's slavery. Is there a third way? Is there a way that leads to freedom instead of slavery? And, and the answer, of course, we're going to look at it this morning, is yes. Now he is, Paul has taught us so far in the book of Galatians in different ways and forms what that way is. And today, he leads us to, yet stated a different way, um, the one way to freedom and the only way to the top of the hill. And that is, now he's going to introduce us to the way of the Spirit. The Spirit life within. That is, God's Holy Spirit, His Holy Presence, indwelling the heart of the believer. Let me begin by just reading for you the only exhortation in these ten verses. All right? It's the only command, the only instruction of what we're supposed to do. And it's stated... Two different times, but it basically means the same thing. Paul writes, I say, now this is the third way. I say, walk by the Spirit. Not by law, not by libertinism, but walk by the Spirit. Capital S there for the Holy Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That second part is a promise based upon the first part. That if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify those things that Jack lived for. He says it in similar, but I think pretty much synonymous terms. Again, in verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So there you have kind of bookends. He begins this section, verse 16, and he closes this section with an exhortation that we're supposed to live or walk or be in the Spirit. All right? Now, I think, as I I read this portion, the most critical question to be answered is what does it mean to live or walk or keep in step with the Spirit? Because it's the only, what you might call exhortation. This is the only thing he tells us to actually do in this section. And I think it's, it, it needs an answer. It's crucial. 
to know exactly what this true weight of life is, and that is walking by the Spirit. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is, is mentally put point one here kind of on the shelf, because I want to come back to it as the primary application at the end, all right? But not before we kind of follow through in a rather quick manner um, how he develops this idea of the spirit life, God's spirit within us. He lays out the principle. The third way is walking by the spirit, living by the spirit, keeping step with the spirit, being led by the spirit. The spirit is the answer. But he goes on after this to show us that this Life in the Spirit is not easy because there is this duality within every Christian. Um, There are conflicting realities within our hearts. Now, he is speaking to us in Galatians as Christians. And he shows us in verses 17 through 18, right after he gives the exhortation of this inner battle of spirit over flesh, of God's spirit within over our flesh. And he states it this way. This is a a remarkable bit of Christian psychology. You want to know what's going on in your heart as a Christian? Paul tells us right here. This is is what's going on. It's like he kind of pops the hood and you get to see how things work. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit, I just want to underline desires of the spirit for later. The spirit desires are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you, you, you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He's, like, he's saying there's, there's these two realities in you. In fact, he tells us four things about those realities. One, he says there's two desire sources within every Christian, or sources of desire. Two motivational centers that want to drive you. So there's two desire centers. That's one thing it teaches us. And those desire centers are opposing. That is, they desire completely contrary things. One's going east, one's going west. There's no overlap. Spirit desires some things, and the flesh desires other things. All right? So they're polar opposites. The third thing it tells us is that not only are they polar opposites, but they are violently antagonistic towards each other. When it says that they are opposed They're opposed to each other. That's a war word, a battle word. That is, they are violently against each other. And then then the fourth thing, which really comes from the the argument as a whole, the whole of it, is, is Paul would insist that the power of the spirit within the heart is greater than the power of the flesh. That is, the potential of the spirit in the new heart is greater than the potential of the flesh. Otherwise, verse 16 wouldn't make sense at all. So... There he has just told us about this conflict within us. And again, he's talking to Christians between spirit and flesh. Now, for those who maybe are newer to the faith and really don't have a clue what I'm talking about, about the spirit within, let me just tell you what happened to you when you came to faith. When you heard, as when I heard, the message about what God has done for me in Christ, and I realized in that moment that I was a sinner, and that God had done everything out of his grace and love to accomplish what I couldn't accomplish. God came to us. He hovered over our hearts, and I'm using descriptive words here. He hovered over our hearts, and he said, 
let there be life. And a new heart was born. It's like God coming over your soul in that moment when the, the good news of Jesus was heard by us and, and God looks at it, you know, the soul and says, Dan Deckard, the real Dan Deckard, the one I saw before the foundation of the universe that I'm recreating, come to life. And life was born. Um, and that's where the Christian life begins is, is when God gives birth to a new creation within the human heart. Um, Christianity is not something we join. It's something we're born into. A new, a new life that he calls forth, um, light out of darkness. And, and that new life, that new birth has new motivations, new desires, new hungers, new thirsts, new, new appetites. It's called the, the new heart, new creation within. And the Spirit did that. He gave us a new heart. And that's where the Spirit resides, is in that new heart. One thing I have to say about that, because some of us have some janky theology of our heart. Janky. I, I better not look that up in the Urban Dictionary. It's probably really bad. Is that oftentimes you'll hear Christians say things like, well, you know, my heart is deceitfully wicked. Above all things, who can know it? And it's like, in part, Yes. But my New Testament tells me that God gave me a new heart, too. Gave you one with new desires that are holy and righteous and that are beautiful. And, and that new heart is alive. And it's desiring. Remember that underscored word? It's desiring to do holy things. That heart is alive in there. All right? And that's part of our makeup as Christians. That heart is there. That new heart is desiring God is there. But Paul also said, there's also this thing that's still there called the flesh, that it's an opposition. You know, that is, the flesh is, it's not our skin. The flesh is, um, as Paul would kind of work around it elsewhere, it's, just, it's that twisted, self-centered, sin-desiring part that loves to make idols out of everything and destroy them in the process. That's a completely different thing. That's, that's the desires of the flesh, and the flesh is very, very um, vacuous. It pulls everything in to try to satisfy. That's the, that's the flesh. And they are in complete and violent um, opposition to one another. So if in your Christian experience, you're like, man, I, I struggle a lot inside. It's like, you know what? Get in line with everybody else, including Paul, because there is this violent tension between spirit and flesh, or, or I should say antagonism between spirit and flesh, which is why Christians sometimes who really do believe do bad things. And to remember that we bear those two things still within us. And yet the good news, as he argues on the whole, is that if we live by the Spirit... Again, back to that central question, what does it mean? Then he says, you will not satisfy the desires of that flesh, which means getting that right is is really important. So that's what's happening inside of you, and that's what's happening inside of me, and it explains a lot. That means, too, that that, that living by the Spirit isn't going to be easy. There's an enemy in you against your true self. The real self, the true self, the true Dan Decker, the true, put any name in it, is the one that was recreated by the Lord. The old you is passing away, and someday, praise be to God, it's going to be dead. Either a death or the return of Jesus. 
Then after this, okay, so he's given us the exhortation. He's kind of laid out how our hearts work. Um, He shows us how these two desire sources that are at work in a Christian, how they manifest themselves differently when they're given free reign. These are the contrasting fruits of these two inner lives. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. That's that, that, that twisted, sin-desiring part, self-centered and proud. Sexual immorality. And you know, I, I just couldn't help but think about culture and even about my own life in regards to this list. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Those first three concepts typify the culture we live in. Idolatry, which is not just bowing down to a a rock or a statue. It's making good things, ultimate things, like family or children or a wife. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Orgies and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason they won't inherit the kingdom of God is because that a life that's lived like this, given fully to this, is a life that doesn't have the spirit in it. Again, I'm not going to go through this list, but I will say that I don't think there's anybody in here that wants those things. Uh, this is not an attractive list. But this is the Jack of the Jack and Jill. This is, this, is, this is Jack's life, is this list, and how it manifests itself. It takes good things, and it, and it, and it pulls it in like a, like a sinkhole. That's, that's, that's what the sinful, fleshly heart does. It pulls it in and destroys good things like, like sexuality, a, a wonderful and amazing gift that God has given to human beings, and yet we take it, we distort it, we twist it to our own selfish ends, and we destroy it and people in the process. It's destructive to relationships, to society, to live by the flesh. And in the end, it's eternally destructive, is what he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't want this list, and I don't think you want this list, but that's where that fleshly heart goes. That's what it produces. By contrast, he then he gives the opposite side. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we, have, live, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's that ex- exhortation again. And there's lots of great little studies on, on, that take apart all of these little fruits of the Spirit, or I should say fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Um, so I'll leave that to your own research, but I, I just want to make two comments with regards to this list. One is that every one of these fruits are what God is. God is love. And the same thing that could be said of God the Father could be said of God the Son. That Jesus is joy. That Jesus is peace. Jesus is himself a patient God. Kind, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. These are qualities of God himself. It stands to reason. It says we learn to live with the Spirit of God within us, to walk in Him, that the same characteristics that characterize God's character are going to manifest themselves and shape our lives. And this list is not like a sinkhole. 
This list is like a, like a spring that, that moves outward and blesses other people, makes the world a better place, and, and, is, uh, and is wonderful. And the second thing I want to say is that I, like who wouldn't want this list? Love and joy and peace. I mean, that's what's in the pale at the top of the hill. This is this what's in Jack and Jill's pale. Love and joy and peace, what the human heart craves. And yet Paul tells us here that these are things that we cannot get or take ourselves. They are fruits produced from another source. And that is the God life within. That is the spirit of Jesus within. The the spirit who indwells that new heart giving us new desires and new appetites. They're fruits. We can't, we can't make fruit happen. And I, I actually am very encouraged by this, that Paul doesn't hear say, Parkway Community Church, or just make it personal. Dan, come on, be at peace and stop being so anxious. Or why don't you generate some more love for people? Because right now you're being kind of loveless. He doesn't say that. What he says is he says, live by the Spirit, and these things will be produced in your life automatically. It's the burden of this whole section, as I said, is to answer that really important question, like, what does it mean to live in and with and by the Spirit? Because the rest of this will take care of itself. If we're living in the Spirit, we are going to be drinking from that pail at the top of the hill that Jack and Jill and we by ourselves can't get to. So what does it mean to live or walk by the Spirit? And now I told you to put that first point on the shelf mentally. Now I want you to take it back out. And let me tell you what I believe it means to walk and live by the Spirit. Because that is the question. And again, as I said, it's the only exhortation. One. Constantly realizing, by faith, your new status in the Spirit. You're like, what? Now you've got to explain what that means. Constantly realizing, by faith, your new status in the Spirit. When I was single, before I was married, I was, my status was single. That's what I put on my income taxes, single. But there's this magical moment after the preacher says, I now pronounce you husband and wife where my status changed. And I was married. And I remember being on the other side of that single moment going, really? <laughs> you know, you get ready to go to bed at the end of the night, you're like, is this legal? <laughs> Am I a sin for sleeping with you? No, no, I got a new status. I'm, I'm married now. This is like permitted, not only permitted, but God wants me to be with you. It's a status change. And it was a wonderful status change. Status change, a new place, a new category, a, a new realm of existence. And one of the things that happens to us is the Spirit takes, when he calls us to life, the Spirit takes the work of Jesus and he presses it into our hearts and applies it. He takes the death of Jesus and he washes us clean 
And he says, you are forgiven. And then he takes the resurrection of Jesus and he imparts new life. And when he does that, when he takes the application of what Jesus did and presses it and creates newness of life in us, our status changes. And that status change is something that is to be constantly realized by the believer. That before that moment, kind of like marriage when they said, now pronounce your husband and wife, in that moment in which the Spirit awakened faith in you, something changed. Before it, your status was sinner. After this moment, your status was saint. So that my status right now is not sinner trying to become saint, it's saint who still struggles with sin. Before this moment, I was under the banner of condemnation, condemned. And after that moment, I was under the banner of fully and completely accepted. This side, I was someone who was inwardly ugly to God's eyes. And on this side, because of the application of the work of Jesus, something infinitely beautiful in God's eyes. You see the difference? Over here... Before this moment when the Spirit came into our lives, we were strangers, aliens, cut off, enemies. And over here, he makes us like his own kids. Status change. And one of the biggest things that Christians have to fight for is is recognizing, waking up each day and going, yes, my status has changed because of what Jesus did and what the Spirit has imparted to my heart. I, I, I have two rings on. Every once in a while, someone asks me, what this, this tells me my status has changed. I'm not single. I'm married. People see it. Ah, he's married. That's a good thing. This ring says Jesus in Hebrew. It reminds me of my status change and that I'm his and he is mine because of what he's done and what has been transferred me, to me by way of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means, status change in the Spirit. That's where, that's... And when that's, that's the reality, you're living in the Spirit. You're experiencing the Spirit. Two, feeding your new heart with what it craves the most. Jesus, his gospel, his will, and I should have added his works. That new heart desires a different kind of food that strengthens it that creates greater sense of vitality, that actually fills you with the Spirit, to use terminology from another place in Paul. Fills you as you feed your soul with what it craves the most. And it's... I think there's a lot of newer believers that are confused as to which, feed, which food feeds. If you go to the... I don't mean to be judgmental here, but I'm being discerning. There's a big difference. If you go to the self-help section of Barnes & Noble, by and large, most of the books are going to feed the flesh side. It's going to make you feel like, I can do this, like Jill. I can make this happen. And there's a sense of empowerment that comes with that. But let's just recognize that it's empowering the wrong center of desire. But there's another kind of food that the Spirit longs for, the Spirit is hungry for, and that food is Christ. 
And, and it, if, 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 you're a, if you're a believer, a real believer, then I think you know what this is like experientially. I, I, when I'm not here, most, some of the times I'm listening to my brothers preach, um, like Tom, I wasn't here last week, but when I'm not, every once in a while I, I secretly attend another church, you know? You know, listen to the preacher. And because uh, I need to be preached to, too. I mean, in MP3s, podcasts don't always do it, you know? You can get a lot of those, and I do listen to them. But to be there live instead of Memorex. <laughs> That's probably really old. Just <laughs> don't tapes anymore. My wife tells me sometimes, you know, sometimes you shouldn't say certain things, and she reminds me of that. So I, I, I remember I was, I can't tell you where the church was, but I went and I listened to message and I want to be fed. And I heard an eloquent delivery of moral instruction. It was well done. And you know what? Ironically enough, it was out of the Bible. But it was devoid of Jesus. And the cross, and I left feeling more like a failure then empowered by the grace of God. And it was like I went and I ate from a foodless plate. Like those, those little rice wafers, you know, that people try to eat that actually have no nutritional value whatsoever. That's how I felt. It's just like, man, I, I came and I, I'm empty. My new heart was craving something different. So this last week while my brother Tom was preaching... We did a little field trip into San Francisco. And, you know, in San Francisco, you're kind of wondering, what are the churches like in San Francisco? And this guy, young guy got up, and it was in a, in an amazing little, not little church, large church. And this guy got up, and, and he preached Christ. And at one point before we took communion, you know, he stopped and he said, you know what? Jesus knows you Fully. He knows your idiosyncrasies. He knows your secrets. He knows your sins. He knows the ugliness and he knows the beauties. He knows you fully. And yet because of his, his love and his sacrifice, he also loves you fully. He knows you and because of what he's done, he loves you fully. And I was just like, that wasn't a rice wafer for me. Then I was like, Lord, you're awesome. Like, I just cannot believe the depth of your love. And, and what is that doing? It's feeding. It's feeding the heart. And when that happens, it's the Spirit of God is, 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 is energized in your heart. And that's, that's what we have to be doing as a congregation Sunday after Sunday. And you at home when you're, when you're opening the Scriptures. Hopefully you're not looking for a moral lesson devoid of Jesus. You're... You're looking for Christ there. And to have your soul fed so that you know him. That's that's what it means, I think, to walk and live by the Spirit. Not just to know my status has changed, but also to continually feed upon it. So it's something that I said with, or that was mentioned last week. And then third, and finally. Remember that that phrase I said you should underline, and that is the desires of the Spirit. That new desire center of learning to yield with discernment to those inward desires and promptings of God's Spirit 
in the new heart. We're so afraid of inner desires as Christians who think that everything in here is bad, and it's not, that you shouldn't listen to anything in here. But we're told by Paul that the Spirit desires against the flesh. That means there are inclinations, and there are desires, and there are appetites which are holy and good, and they actually come from God. Now, that doesn't mean that you should listen to desires that are outside the scope of the love and peace and joy or outside the authority of God's objective scripture. That would clearly not be the case. I mean, the Spirit wrote scripture. This is His voice. And if the Spirit speaks subjectively in here through the desires, He's not going to be inconsistent. So if someone says, well, you know what? I really believe the Spirit is leading me to leave my wife and go out with somebody else. It's like, that is definitely not the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't move here and doesn't lead here and guide here and put upon us those, those burdens and pressures of love to do something. You know, some of the best things in our community, I think, were, 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 were blossomed out of someone sensing a desire, a call, an inward burden to start a, a homeless ministry or start a tutoring ministry or, you know, <laughs> go and pick up trash and wash graffiti or... Um, take a, a, an underprivileged kid under your wing. Those are those are those we need to pay attention to. And I've found that most of the time, when when I have followed those inward promptings under the authority of Scripture, there's just an amazing delight and and wonder. And it's like God, you worked. It's like, well, hello, I was leading you the whole time. You're paying attention. So if, listen, if you want to know what like to walk by the Spirit, and this isn't everything there is to say by walking by the Spirit, it's just, you know, recognize that your new status in the Spirit, who you really are. You know, feed your soul with Christ. Feed that new heart where the Spirit dwells and experience His strength. But then also pay attention to those desires of the heart against the flesh, and I think you should follow through on them. Again, under the careful authority of Scripture. So here you have, I think, um, a basic description of what it means to live and walk by the Spirit. And, and you know, if we do, we get to drink from the top of the hill, you know? It's actually, call me quirky about the Jack and Jill thing. I don't care. I was was just, you know, I was running with my wife yesterday, and and I, I just thought, you know, Jack couldn't make it up the hill his way, and Jill couldn't make it up the hill her way, but there's somebody else whose name started with J who did make it up that hill. And at the top of that hill, ironically and surprisingly enough, he poured out his life. And he rose again on that third day so that he could bring that pail of water that we couldn't get down to us. And that water is himself. It's his spirit, his love, his joy and his peace. Father in heaven, I just pray that you would make, enable us to be people who live, walk, and delight in your spirit, that we would feed our souls with Jesus and with everything that he has done on our, on our behalf and with his word and with his works, and that you would enable us to be springs in this community, in this city, as we, as we um, see the fruits of your spirit alive and working through 
our lives and our church. In Jesus' name, amen.